Um, what John 17? We're back on John 17. <coughs> Verses 20 through 26. And I have that lengthy outline for you. Not that we're going to go through the whole thing. We've gone through two-thirds of it. But just as a reference point, um, as you consider uh, the first two points uh, this week, um, two questions are on my mind as I study the scriptures. Two questions. Uh, my study of the Word of God is driven by two simple questions. The first question that is on my mind as I study the Bible is, what does the passage mean? What does the passage mean? The second question is, what does the passage mean? Right. And you think those two are the same questions. No, there are two different questions. The first question is, what is the meaning of the passage? What does the passage mean? Right. What is uh, the interpretation of the passage? The second question is, what is the significance of this passage? What does the passage mean for my life? Mean for me as a Christian? What does the passage mean, the verse mean, the text mean for me as a man, as a husband, as a pastor, as a father, as a son, as a worker? What are the implications, the applications of that passage to me in, in those areas of my life. In the early years of the student of the Bible, the first question was a challenge for me. What does the Bible mean? I don't understand. What is it saying? What is the interpretation of this verse? As I've grown in my study, study of the scriptures, as I've grown in my um, understanding of the word, the challenge for me is shifting more and more to the second question. What is the significance of the passage Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, How Then Should We Live? That's my question after I understand the meaning of the passage. How then should I live? In light of what this passage means, in light of the conclusions and the principles derived from this text, how am I to change? How am I to obey? How am I to apply these truths to my life? All right. I believe uh, one of the key strengths of our teaching ministry at Cornerstone is that we ask that second question. So many churches and so many teachers just ask the, just ask the first question, what does the Bible mean? And they just lay out to the people what the Bible says. And they close their instruction. But at Cornerstone, we endeavor to go and ask that second question. What does the Bible mean for you as it relates to you and to your life? This is why John 17, 20-26, particularly verses 20 and 21, <coughs> has been such a challenge for us. It's been a challenge to understand the meaning of verses 20 and 21. Has it not? It took me about two weeks to understand those two verses. And also the second challenge. In light of our understanding of verses 20 and 21, what do these truths mean for us? How are we to change our perspective of unity in light of these verses? How are we to change our relationships with one another? How are we to understand ministry and how we conduct ministry in light of its truths? It requires a paradigm shift. It requires a whole new way of thinking. It's not just uh, pray more, 
You know, those are simple applications. Read the Bible more, right? Watch TV less, you know, um, waste time less. Those are simple applications. The difficult ones is I need to change how I think. I need to change how I perceive things. I need to change my paradigm in terms of fellowship, unity, ministry, relationships. And so those are two reasons why it has been a challenge for us. Now, I believe the first question was addressed in the first two sermons of John 17, 20 through 26. If it hasn't, then forgive me. You know, I've not done my part. If you go back and listen to those sermons, and hopefully it'll help you in understanding what the text means in terms of interpretation. Therefore, today we're going to focus on the second question. Right? What is the significance? What are the implications Um, In light of our understanding of the text, what are the implications to our lives, to our our ministry, and to our church? Some might say, what kind of expository sermon is this? It's not expositional. Well, understand, it has been expositional. Our first sermon especially, if you remember, I mean, we got very nitty-gritty to the grammar, original Greek, purpose clauses, imperative, imperative mood, and we answer that first question. The second part of second sermon and, and today's sermon is more the significance. So it's not a classic expository sermon, but nonetheless, a part of an expositional study of 17, 20 through 21. So to start us off, to that end, to that purpose of understanding the implications of these truths to our lives, I want to uh, share with you my story share with you uh, my journey in search of unity. That will help you maybe understand uh, the significance of this passage, how it applies to to all of us and applies to our church. Years before I looked for a wife, years before I looked for um, a community of believers that I can love and that will love me back. Years before, I looked for a wife. I looked for a body of believers that would be like-minded with me and I could run the race of faith together and that I can be an encouragement to them and they'll be an encouragement to me. You know, when I was in the world growing up in junior high and high school, I valued friends. I valued friendships. You know, and I had some good friends in my high school years. But those were all my non-Christian friends. And after I became a Christian, I found that Our unity was very shallow, almost non-existent. I could not love them because I was a sinner. I was selfish. I was was living this world for myself. I couldn't love my own parents. I couldn't love my own sister. How could I love my friends? My love for them wasn't true. It was just purely social exchange. And those guys, they were selfish guys too. They didn't really love me. They didn't really care for my soul. I mean, we enjoyed, you know, sports together. We enjoyed going out to eat together, watching movies together. But there wasn't any lasting uh, unity, any lasting love for one another. And after our high school years passed by, once we got into college, those ties uh, fell apart and uh, we, we drifted apart. And in college, I was looking for that kind of unity. Even as a non-believer, I joined a fraternity on campus at Long Beach State. I joined other groups as well, looking for that connection, looking for that community to live, live my life with. And um, 
they were all shallow and empty as well. Now, when I became a Christian, one of the first joys of the Christian faith that I discovered, that I experienced, was the sweetness of fellowship. I mean, that the unity we have in Christ. I never really experienced that in the world. There were semblances of that, but it was all like decorative. It was all external at the heart. It wasn't there. But as a Christian, one of the first things that I found so sweet, so precious, was that believers coming together, and we had a commonness. We had um, this deep love for Christ together, and this supernatural, spiritual love for one another. And it was something that was wholly new to me, and it was, it was just precious to me. So from almost day one as a believer, I was searching for uh, a group of believers that I can live with, that I can die with, and I can die for. So three groups that I, that I, that I sought after. first group is <coughs> the Little Spark Campus Ministry. I was saved by this ministry while I was in college. A brother from this ministry came to me while I was working, living in sin, and shared the gospel. And I was saved into this ministry. And in the beginning, that's all I knew. I thought this was biblical Christianity. And we were united in purpose. I mean, our, we were united to make disciples of all nations. We were united in terms of how we were going to live our lives. We were going to live our lives loving Christ and loving one another. So within six months, I, um, somewhat, sounds somewhat cultish, but we rented a house and eight guys lived together and we slept in one room. We got four bunk beds, put them all in one room and we woke up every morning together at 5.30 in the morning. We woke up together and we ran two miles to wake us up. You know, my argument was, I don't need two miles to wake me up. Right? I need two steps that I'm awake. <laughs> But they were convinced that physical training is of some value and it aids us spiritually. So every morning, and I hate running, but I ran those two miles. Uh, and then we would do quiet time. We would have breakfast together with bagels and cream cheese and share our morning devotions to one another. And then we would go our separate ways to campus. We evangelized together. We had a Bible reading chart in our living room and we would kind of keep each other accountable on how much we were reading the scriptures. It was kind of competition for me. So, you know, they were reading like you know, long chapters like Luke, you know, but I was reading Psalms. So I was like way ahead of them in terms of chapters. We would come back and, you know, write how, who we witnessed to and how many we witnessed to and so forth. And uh, they'd open our preaching together. And every night, um, oh, one thing, we ran two miles every day except on Fridays. Fridays was special. We played basketball instead for one hour. So Friday, you know, every day we'd have a hard time getting up, right? But on Friday, man, I was up, ready to go. I was dressed. Let's go. Let's go and do quiet time after basketball. Um, every night we had prayer meeting, 10 p.m. Every night. And then for all the guys living there, we had a, con- you know, contra- not a contract, but a, like a commitment. No dating, right? We're not going to date. Some of those guys are older guys too, but they're living by faith. No dating, right? No TV, no magazines. One time I brought like Time magazine with Arsenio Hall on the cover, and one of the older brothers rebuked me. I said, you know, that's not a good thing. And I was like, you're right. Arsenio is not good. <laughs> so no secular magazines, you know, in our in our apartment. Right? I mean, these men had sincere love for Christ, sincere love for one another. They were so 
tender-hearted, so gracious, so generous to one another. I mean, these guys freely gave gifts to one another, open hands. Uh, one guy's way, way, one way this, this guy would serve the, the guys in the uh, apartment was, he would give massages, right? So we would like be sitting around, we had no TV, so we're sitting around talking, laying around. And like, if you're laying around, he would come and just give you a massage, right? And, be, and he was like a, I don't know, he took classes or something. I mean, it was like just, you know, a, a taste of heaven. So whenever we would see him walk in the room, we would like all jump and lay on the floor. Like we pray, Lord, and he would give us a massage. A running joke of our apartment. There he is! And we would like lay on top of him, in front of him, for the, hoping that by grace he would give us a massage. I mean, good guys. Our goal was to make disciples of all nations. Our goal was reproduction. So we, we had a chart, a mathematical chart of each of us disciple two guys a year. We would reach the world in 14.5 years. Right? We would do this work of global evangelization. We figured it would take a little longer than 14 and a half years because of man's sinfulness. But we thought definitely, you know, by th- year 20, right, the work will be done. You know, first two or three years, it was like the wonder years. It was honeymoon stage. Uh, I thought to myself, I've been seeking such unity, such a community all my life, and I finally found it. These are men that I love, men that love the Lord and sincere love for one another. I mean, such gracious, generous, humble hearts. I could live and die with these men. I can die for these men. I remember thinking that, that my life would be complete if I were to live and die with these men. But slowly but surely, there were growing signs of disunity. And there were, it was not growing disunity, but unveiling revelations of divisions that were already uh, existent. That were already there. As we spent time together and, and we, we talked and we fellowshiped and we did ministry together, we discovered that we each had a different view of God. That each person had a different view of God's sovereignty, God's omniscience, omnipotence, God's immutability. Each person had a different view of God. Each person had a different view or different take on man's sinfulness. Some thought man was actually pretty good. Some thought men were neutral. Others thought men were completely depraved. Doctrine of salvation. How men were saved was different. We had some guys going around praying in tongues to non-Christians. Believing that it's through these uh, power encounters a person would come to the faith. Others thought you, you, you let someone to Christ by just giving them examples and evidences and philosophical arguments one after the other. Others believed that the Word of God was sufficient. So we had... Uh, a divided, divergent approaches to gospel ministry. We had differences in doctrine of the church. Many, if not, had a low view of the local church. The local church was for those who were uh, compromised Christians. You know, they were weak Christians. They, they weren't serious about their Christian faith. The parachurch ministry, campus ministry, that was um, a true work for Christ. That was true ministry for the Lord. And there was different views on family. They considered it a noble to sacrifice your wife for the sake of the ministry. It was, uh, it, you know, it was highly uh, um, encouraged to even sacrifice your family life, your children, for the sake of God's work. And if you did that, um, you know, your reputation, your, your stock went up in the church as well. And so because the Bible and doctrine was not the authority of the church, 
different authorities were vying for um, for, for to, vying for the authority to lead lead the ministry. I mean, definitely the Bible was the stated authority, but functionally, practically, the Bible was not the the, the authority. Functionally, um, Korean culture tradition was the authority of the church. Uh, age uh, was the authority in Korean culture. You don't question anyone who's older than you. So there was this authority just because they were older and whatever they said must, must be obeyed, must be, must be followed. Um, um, they gave, therefore, they, they led, you know, like spiritual authority was a big thing. They made decisions for us. They told us what to do and wouldn't give us explanations for why. I mean, there's I mean, so many illustrations. Uh, you know, like... We're at a retreat, and they wanted us to do body worship, you know. And like, you know, and I'm like, look, I'm a man, right? Come on, I, I, I have some dignity here. I, I, okay, I could do body worship, all right, you know, for the sake of the team. But I'm not gonna go and do that body worship, right? There's body worship appropriate for men. There's body worship like it's not appropriate for for men to do. And like, they were so insistent. And this, you know, women sister leader told me, you need to obey obedience. Right. I was like, oh man, like, right? So actually I obeyed, right? Man, to this day, you know. I mean, those kind of issues. When I was dating Serene, they told me I can't date Serene. I'm like, why not? And they said, well, you just can't. I'm like, well, give me a reason. Well, because we said so. Not a good enough reason, right? And I, we dated her anyway. I was kind of like the rebel of, of, the, of the group, you know. And I saw the devastating effects of such disunity. Because the authority was outside the scriptures, if you raise biblical questions, you were, you were seen as divisive. Right? Like Bible knowledge wasn't esteemed. What was esteemed was just mindless following of the methods promoted by the ministry. Uh, doctrine, theology... A scripture was not emphasized. They saw the Bible, and they saw theology as a source of division. Like, oh, Calvinism is dividing us. Right? Our, our understanding, our teachings, our, our knowledge of who God is, and what He has done, and what He demands of us, that those things divide us. Let's not raise the Bible, biblical questions in our ministry because they were dividing us. Therefore, more and more, the ministry was driven not by the scriptures, but driven by methods, Driven by programs and pragmatism, which ends justify the means. And so in that kind of environment, um, true sanctification wasn't being promoted in the hearts of the people, right? Because we, the only way to be sanctified is by the Word of God. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. When truth is not central, then everybody is in a group thinking mentality. They're doing the outward uh, uh, external commitments of religion, but hearts aren't being sanctified. So we, I saw firsthand staff meetings uh, deteriorate into shouting matches. I mean, I saw in the staff meetings like men yell at each other, point fingers, accuse, and guys walking out just in anger. Right. So if you're new to the ministry, you had no idea that was going on. You know, we're singing, we're you know. We're smiling, we're crying together, praying, and we're happy, and people are getting saved and growing. But behind the scenes, where the sausages are being made, it was ugly. It was, it was, it was disgusting. 
uh, I discovered, you know, a lot of pride in my own heart. And I try to grow as a Christian. I try to grow over my pride, my hunger for glory, my hunger for attention, esteem. But because the Word of God wasn't central, I, was, I couldn't rise above my own pride, my own selfishness. And uh, in that environment, the talented guys, the gifted guys, the quote-unquote dynamic guys became leaders. But because of that, like we were, I mean, excuse me, you know, the children here, but it's true, we were jerks. We had no character. We weren't humble. We weren't godly. We weren't you know, truly gracious. Right, we're using the system to promote ourselves and not promote Christ. Within a few short years, maybe within a year, the ministry caved within itself. I mean, it, was just, it just fell apart like a deck of cards. It was, uh, it was built upon sand, not upon a solid rock. And it folded so quickly. You know, I, looking back, I have nothing but love for these men and women. I see them around and I love them. Relational unity, right? I love them. I have nothing but kind words. But in terms of doctrine and, 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 and ministry, um, we were not pursuing true unity. We're not pursuing true unity with Christ, nor are we pursuing true unity with one another. So that was my first search for true community, and it failed. And my second search was with Miracle Land Baptist Church. Right? That was a, a.k.a. Cypress Baptist Church. When I got admitted to a, a master seminary, they asked me what church I serve at. I said, Cypress Baptist Church. <laughs> right? I never mentioned Miracle Land Baptist Church in TMS because... Miracle Land, what does that mean? Right? I mean, anyways, so obviously we were not united in doctrine or theology. Right? We're united in purpose, united in the local church, united to the people that were there. I mean, Bob was there, right? I mean, some of you were there as well, right? Um, but we're definitely not united in, in doctrine. Therefore, again, the usual suspects showed up again. I mean, pragmatism. They had on the wall this giant poster, 500 members by year 2000. That was the goal of the church. So don't bring up doctrine. Don't bring up philosophy of ministry. Don't bring up church discipline. Don't confront sin because our goal is to reach 500 people by year 2000. That is our core value. We compromise on everything to reach that number. And so it was a Korean culture. It's a senior pastor, deacon's authority culture. So we had a lot of just you know, difficulties with them. One year they wanted to send non-Christians to missions, right? So that by going to the mission field, going to Mexico, somehow they would become Christians. And I said, what am I missing here? Like, missions should be done by Christians. This is not like heavy theology. This is not like systematic or like, you know, reformed theology. It's basic. Missionaries should be Christians, before they go to missions. And they're like, you know, no, like, and they were, and so we, they, we had this big, big debate. One time I was at a staff meeting and I brought my Bible and I was, you know, sharing from the Bible and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? Why are you bringing up Bible verses? Because we're Christians, right? <laughs> because we're all pastors, right? Because what we should be doing is applying scripture to our ministry and church, but they didn't want the Bible in the church. Because the authority was not scripture. It was a stated authority, but practically, functionally, it was, it was not 
the word of God. And the straw that broke the camel's back was when they hired a youth pastor to work with me, who was not even a Christian. He was from a Roman Catholic seminary. He was not, his first sermon to our church was, everybody close your, preaching to the kids, everybody close your eyes, picture Jesus in all your friends. Jesus is in everybody. So I went to the man, I went to the leaders, the deacons, and the pastors of the church, and I said, how can you hire this guy as a, as a pastor? He's not even a Christian. And they're like, what do you mean? I, I, I want to entrust you know, my, 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 my pets to him. You know, I don't trust my enemies to him, but you're entrusting your children to this guy's spiritual leadership? You're bringing, you know, a wolf into, the, into your own house and having him babysit your kids. Right? How do you feel about that? Right? So I, I resigned, and that's how Cornerstone was birthed uh, in 99. That was my second search. You know, didn't work out, work out as well. Well, the third group was the Master Seminary. Master Seminary. And what I found there was uh, men who had biblical convictions. Men driven not by pragmatism. Men driven not by just um, you know, pride or success in the world. But men driven by the Word of God. Men who lived and ministered according to God's Word. Men who were deeply committed to biblical theology and a biblical philosophy of ministry. We are finally, I found a group of men who are united in the Word of God, and I thought to myself, promised land, right? I have found the promised land, and God has allowed me to not just look over, and, you know, but I was able to enter. I remember driving home so many times as you cry, like, you know, I drive home down 101, not because of the traffic, you know, but I cried because I was so thankful for the, for the men, of the, of the professors, and my fellow students, you know, we would sing, you know, like a mighty fortress together, and I would just tear because we're united in the same view of God, same view of sin, same view of Scripture. We are driven by the same things. I thought my search was over. I have found unity with other like-minded men. But, uh, you know, that honeymoon kind of kind of ended as well. I love the Master Seminary, but... You know, I went there and I found all these men and I thought, great, we're all united. We love one another. And after a while, I realized this guy won't minister with this guy. You know, this guy has a grudge against him. You know, and this church, these churches won't work together. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? I thought you guys were all united. But within Master Seminary, within the churches, you know, established by seminary grads or alumni seminary, there was all this tension and even animosity between the students. I mean, it was crazy. And then I wanted to speak at a church uh, pastored by a graduate of the seminary. It's a Bible church and I was so discouraged by what I found there. There was no spiritual intensity. There was no spurring one another in Christ. It was a church of 40 or 50 and 10 people came to the retreat and their big thing was they bought this $600 overhead projector and they were playing video games on it, right, in between services. And when I was watching with the pastors there, they were just goofing around, joking around, telling joke after joke and there, there was no serious pursuit of Christ or pursuit of holiness, right. And then the kicker was this. You know, they asked me to preach three or four sermons. And one sermon I was, I, I, I told them I'll, I'll give was Peter's denial, Matthew 26, 31 through 35. Peter's denial, Christ's Gethsemane, you know, his restoration in John 21. 
And right before the message, they ha- passed out ice cream. Right? There's two scoops of ice cream. Everybody's eating ice cream while I'm preaching on Peter's denial of the Lord. Man, I, I look back. You know, if, if that happened now, I would have walked out. I would have said, Serena, let's go home. As soon as an eyewitness, I said, let's go home. We're getting in our cars. We're not seeing anything. In the middle of the sermon, I would have prayed and closed and walked out of that church because that was so, you know, it's not, it's not to me, but it's just, just plain wrong. In Little Spark, they never had ice cream <laughs> during service, right? They might have been praying in tongues, you know, crying out to Christ, you know, banging on chairs, but they never had, I was unthinkable. If you had ice cream during service, I mean, we would like dogpile you, right? <laughs> but here, the pastors are all eating ice cream while I'm preaching, right? Uh, so... Another church I wanted to speak at, another TMS grad, another Bible church. They asked me to speak. And here I am preaching on Lordship Salvation, getting ready, gearing up. The presider goes up there and he says they have a talent show. Okay, great. It's like an hour-long talent show with magic tricks, you know, puppets. I mean, it was crazy. And then an hour more of skits. And then an hour more of children's presentation. And it was like 12, 15 a.m., Okay, Pastor James will come up and give his sermon. I'm coming up there, everybody's like, like laying down, ready to go to sleep. And I thought, wait, I thought, you know, TMS guys, we valued the centrality, the authority, the, the importance of the pulpit. And they're having me preach on Lordship Salvation, an hour-long, at least, sermon at 12.15 a.m. Right? I mean, I was thinking, should I just cut it down to 10 minutes, you know, you know and just close the service here? Right? I mean, I didn't expect, I expected that from Miracle Land Baptist Church, but not from a Bible church of a GMS crowd. And the, and the final one, the final one I'll share with this, and I want you to know I love seminary, I love Grace Community. I mean, you guys know that. I love the professors. You know, one guy, a seminary student, grad, I was talking to him, a smart student, very good student. You know, he probably got, he definitely got better grades than me. I talking to him for, and I, I don't want to exaggerate, so I'll say 30 minutes. But I, I, could, I could say it's almost 45, but I, I don't exaggerate. He talked about himself for 30 minutes nonstop. It was clear. This guy loves himself. But this guy, you know, loves to hear himself speak. He is, um, you know, just the best Christian, best pastor. He is God's gift to the church. I couldn't believe it. I was listening to him with another pastor, right? We're like, you know, much older than him. And he's just going on about himself. And I'm thinking, what's going on here, right? You know, same seminary, same doctrine, same theology, right? same pursuit of Christ. And yet, how come I, there is this lack of unity with certain men from even the master seminary? You know, for the first seven years of my Christian life, I was told all you need is Christ to be united with fellow believers. If you're a Christian, there's unity. Or, as you know, Beto said, all you need is love. Right? You just love one another and there's unity. Or all you need is prayer. You need to pray more. Or all you need is right doctrine. If you just agree on scripture, there'll be unity. Well, I was again and again disappointed. And I realize now, I now realize why. Because I had a wrong understanding of Christian unity. And I had a wrong interpretation of John 17 verses 20 and 21. All these years, I thought Jesus prayed for our unity. 
Therefore, we must pursue unity at all costs. Even if it means compromising on certain doctrines. Even if it means compromising on certain convictions in terms of character, in terms of holiness. Even if it means those things because Jesus prayed for unity and prays for unity, we must pursue that at all costs. Well, that fog finally lifted. Clarity finally came and it's crystallizing, uh, crystallizing in my mind in light of our study of these verses. And we concluded that Jesus did not pray for unity in verses 20 and 21. Our Lord did not. We discovered, and there's your outline, the third pillar, that spiritual unity. I, I, I don't know... The, I'm not putting the right labels to this, but I don't know how else to describe it. It's spiritual unity. Like that brother who talks about himself, I know he's a Christian, I know he has right doctrine, but spiritually there isn't this kinship. I don't feel and sense this one-heartedness with him, right, for those reasons. And I cannot foresee me ever working with him in the same church. It's just not possible. It's not because I'm a better Christian than him. No, it's just... It's that unity is not there. And it's because spiritual unity and ministerial, or anything related to ministry, that unity is a fruit, is a result of doctrine and holiness. It's the result. It's not the pursuit. It's the result. Right. John 17, verse 8. Christ prays how He gave God's Word to these apostles and to us and we received them. The world rejected Jesus Christ's revelation of God. But the apostles and you and I, we received them. We received truth from Christ. And so Christ's prayer in verse 11 is, keep them in your name. The name that which reveals the character of God. Father, Protect them. Do not let them stray from the truth. There is right doctrine. There is theology. There is the Word of God. That's Christ's first prayer. His second prayer is verse 17. Sanctify them by that truth. By the revelation I gave to them, make them holy. That's his second prayer. Verses 20 and 21 tells us, that He prays for them and for us so that we would be unified. So our unity is a result of doctrine and life. And that is huge. That is so significant. um, It it requires a paradigm shift for us to understand the significance of that. That Christ did not pray for unity but unity is a result of doctrine and life. You know, and I gave those two sermons, and preaching is weird. You know, I sit at my desk, and I, you know, type away at my computer, and look at passages, and read books, and I have all these things going in my mind. I write it out on, on, on my notes, and I, I preach it at church, and sometimes I have no idea. Anybody understand the words that come out of my mouth? Anybody getting what I'm saying? Does anybody get it? And then, especially these two sermons, I mean, it's just such a paradigm shift. 
And then Mike Costura emailed this flock at Cerritos, reiterating, you know, my first two sermons, because it was somewhat convoluted, somewhat difficult to grasp. And in his explanation, I understood, I, I got that he got it. He understood not just what I was saying, but how significant, how pivotal this interpretation of John 17, 20, and 21 was. And I was so encouraged. So if you don't understand what I'm saying, go ask Mike Costura, <laughs> and he'll relate to you what I'm really saying. So in light of that conclusion, let's look at five implications. Five implications. First implication is, any unity apart from the Bible, apart from biblical theology, apart from doctrine, is a false, incomplete unity. Right? It's a false unity. That's why we have FOF. It is not to show you guys how much we know. It's not just to have you guys go through hoops and, you know, do this, not do that, you know. Memorize this, this verse, you know. Like, what else can we do to make, you know, membership more difficult? Why do we have an FOF class? It's because we understand that if you join our church and you don't believe in the attributes of God as we understand it, unity is impossible. We understand that if you join our church and we don't agree on man's total depravity, we don't agree on unconditional election, we don't agree on spiritual gifts, all these, all these doctrines, then no matter how much we love one another, no matter how much we pray and spend time with one another, no matter how much we share in commonness in terms of our personality and hobbies, unity is not a possibility. Because unity is a result of doctrine. And unity apart from that is a false unity. That's why we have such a comprehensive uh, membership course. Because this is our opportunity right, for you to end your search to find a community of believers that you can run the race of faith with. And this is our way of finding who we have commonness with in, in the world. Right? Well, people say, what about unity based on a biblical cause? And this is a temptation for us, right? This is difficult for us. Many people say we should unite ourselves in ministry because of the greatness of the cause. Because the cause is so great, we should set aside any kind of all differences and unite for common ministry. So, for example, man, I want to reach... You know, China and North Korea. Right? I mean, they're closed countries to the gospel. I want to reach North Korea. I want to go there for missions. I want to send missionaries there. And people say, well, don't you know it's illegal to preach the gospel there? You get arrested, you go to jail? Yes, it's always been illegal. That's where the gospel always flourishes. When you preach the gospel in darkness. That's our call. But it is such a difficult ministry that there are... that. People say, we need to be united. We need to set aside our doctrine, set aside theology because of this great call to evangelize China and North Korea or cause against a pornography in America or abortion or for some political cause or for some uh, social cause or church growth. They say because of that, because of this great cause, we should be united uh, together as one singular church um, for, for these reasons. Well, we, our response is, again, it's a false unity if it's apart from the Bible. 
These are even a biblical cause. There are pragmatic reasons. Because you are telling us, and the ends justify the means. You're saying that reaching North Korea is more important than truth. It's more important than holiness. We would say no. Right? We would say no. The Word of God is more important. And holiness is more important. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because God is so sovereign, He has ordained the end, which is we win. Right? It's not a flip of a coin. I hope, you know, I hope it works out. I hope we're victorious. No, Christ said, we win. This is, and this is the means to which we, how we will win. The means is through the Word of God, according to the Word of God, and by us obeying the Word of God. God's not going to achieve His means, His end, apart from His ordained means. We believe that. Therefore, we must not compromise on God's Word or on holiness to achieve God's end because God is sovereign. Or what about... Let's be united by truth, but minimal truth. It's this reductionistic approach to Christianity. Long as we can all agree that Jesus is the only way to God, that's, that's sufficient, that's enough for us to be united with other ministries, other churches. Well, in this way, biblical doctrines are de-emphasized, they're ignored, they're considered secondary, trivial differences. And issues like man's sinfulness, authority of the Bible, men's and women's roles, lordship salvation, all these issues are relegated to secondary secondary, uh, importance. They're marginalized and deemed unimportant. We should set set them aside because um, we agree that Jesus is the only way to God. We would say no. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8 says, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but rejects God. When the Bible tells us a truth, we have a moral duty to obey that truth. We are not to outthink God and say, no, you know, this pragmatic reason is worth us compromising on a direct command of God. Our responsibility, our moral responsibility is submit to the Word of God, the full counsel of God. And ultimately we understand that if we have, to the degree we're united by Scripture, to that degree we're united. So if we're united by, you know, the, the, the least, you know, the, the reduced uh, principle as possible, then we, we, we recognize that our unity is a false unity. It's a weak unity. It's an incomplete unity at best. Implication number two in light of the conclusion that unity is a result of life, the doctrine of life. Implication two is, unity apart from the mutual pursuit of sanctification is a false and incomplete unity. So lest I, it's some controversial, but doctrine is not enough. Right? Bible is not enough. Right? Do you think that we are united because we have and hold to the same doctrinal statement it's not true. Right. It's not biblical. Right. We must pursue not just Paul's doctrine, but Paul's life. And I believe that is the reason for any division within Cornerstone. I don't think there is any division doctrinally in our church. I don't think so. 
If there, are, if there are, it's very minimal. It's very, you know, minute. But the divisions that are existing in the church, the divisions that you experience with your elders, or with your flock shepherd, or with your ministry leader, it's not because of doctrine, but it's because of your life, your sanctification. It could be you're involved in some sin and you're tolerating it. It could be some you know, pride or selfishness or self-centeredness or self-focused uh, mindset. It could be some self-will in your heart or how you choose to make decisions or how you live, live your life or lead your family. That is the reason for disunity in the church. And if you think, oh, it's okay, we're united because we, we are united in FOF and doctrine. No, that's only half of unity. It's both and. Both and. Right life is required. Therefore, implication three. True unity is that which is based on biblical truths and practical holiness. And practical holiness. You know, both are necessary. I mean, First Timothy 4.16 Watch your life and doctrine. Right. Watch your life and doctrine. Ephesians 4.11 4.1, excuse me. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Calling is the word of God. Walking in a manner worthy is your life. Paul exhorted both. Both are important for unity. Colossians 3.1 If you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, according to the Word of God, seek the things that are above. James 1.22 Be doers of the Word. Do not be deceived. Be not hearers only and be deceived. Just hearing the sermon is not enough. Knowing FOF is not enough. Studying Genesis is not enough. Hearing the truth is not enough. You must be doers of the Word of God. Apart from these two things, unity is incomplete. Unity is not complete. And that's what Paul says about Timothy. You know, you see that relationship with Paul and Timothy. The unity, that camaraderie, that, that, that one-heartedness they, they had. And you see in, their, in Paul's description of Timothy that it's more than just doctrine. He talks about Timothy, my son in the faith. He imitates my faith. He has the interests of Christ. I have no one else like him. Everyone has their own interests in mind. But he has the interests of Christ. And that is why I love him, because that's my interest. I live for Christ and Christ's interest to serve the church, to evangelize the lost, and that same thing for Timothy. And then he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, Suffer with me as a soldier of Christ. Timothy, I know you believe the same things that I believe, but be united with me. Suffer with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then we find in Hebrews chapter 13, 23, the writer of Hebrews is not Paul, it's someone else. And what does he say? He says, Timothy just came out of prison. He was this meek, tender, soft guy. He went to jail for Christ, right? Showing that he was following not just Paul's doctrine, but following Paul's courage, Paul's bravery, Paul's selfless heart, right? True unity is that which is based on truth and holiness. 
Implication number four. Right doctrine and practical holiness are the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not my work, it's not your work, it's the Holy Spirit's work. Therefore, spiritual and ministerial unity is God's work and not ours. It's God's work. So I can't, I can't create unity between us or between you and the church. It's not a possibility. Because it's God's work. I am helpless to do anything about our unity. Right? Positionally, we're united. Relationally, I want to be united with you by you know, being gracious and kind and loving. But spiritual unity, ministerial unity, is not, it's not, I can't do it. Even though I want to, I can't do anything. It's up to God. That's when Marcus Denny called me from Spokane and saying he wants to join our church. You know, I didn't call him back. Right? He called me again. I said, well, Marcus, come to our church. You know, we'll see. Sink or swim. Right? Because I don't know your doctrine and I don't know your life. And if you have wrong doctrine, if you have your wrong life, I can't change you. The only Holy Spirit can do that. And we can't be united. So, sink or swim, brother. You come, let's see what happens. Right? Same thing with Jason. When Jason wanted to come to our church, so you got to just come as a member. We, you, we can't have you come as a pastor. No way. You come, and be a member, and we'll see. Because, Jason, what if you come and you have the same doctrine with me because you're in the TMS, but right, you're not a godly man. I can't do anything. If you're not a godly man in some area of your life, then we can't have unity. And we can't serve together. I'm helpless. Same thing when Joshua came. Same thing with Joe, Joe Jung, and Joe White. Our flock shepherds, our leaders of Cornerstone. Right? You know, we don't, Bob and I, we don't say, okay, Francis, we're going to make him a flock shepherd. Right? Uh, Gary Kim, okay, we're going to make him a leader. We don't have that kind of authority. We don't have that kind of power. We can't lay hands on him and all of a sudden, you know, Francis has right doctrine and right life. No. It's God's work. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And when the Holy Spirit raises a man with truth and the pursuit of holiness, then there is unity and we can serve together. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, then there's nothing we can do. That is why we don't pressure anyone to join our church. Right? We don't. Come on, join Cornerstone, you know. 500 by year 2010. Come on, let's do it. Right? No, because we understand your heart is up to the Lord. Your doctrine, your life is up to the Lord. Right? And so, it's not up to us. It's up to Christ. And we don't want people to join our church apart from doctrine. Right? That's why we have FOF in the beginning. Right? We want you to know what you're getting into. And we don't want to join, people join our church apart from pursuit of holiness. Right, you know, because they like you know our, our band, you know our songs, or they like our children's ministry, or they have good kids ministry, you know, or or Meals on Wheels, right? In this church, you know, you have a baby, they keep feed you for three weeks, right? I know some churches might do that, but we don't want that in our church because we understand if you join a church because of Meals on Wheels, man, that's not real unity. If you join a church because of ministry or what you get out of it, that's not true unity. That's not what I'm searching for. I believe that's not what you should be searching for either. Again, unity is a byproduct of that. Therefore, it's God's work and our our work. Therefore, in a church, you want to have fellowship with believers. It's not up to you. You can't say, oh, I want to have fellowship with him. I want to have a relationship with her. Right? That's self-will. 
Because that unity is not up to our control. It's up to the Holy Spirit maturing your doctrine, maturing your holiness. The same time maturing that other person's doctrine and holiness. And you have this unity between you two. That's a result of the Holy Spirit's work. It's not, I'm going to be your friend, or you're going to be my friend. right? We're going to have unity together. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. Implication number five. Therefore, the way to pursue unity in the church is by pursuing God's work, word and personal holiness individually. Right? It's by personally, individually pursuing God's word and true holiness. Unity is not, hey, let's hang out together. Hey, let's have lunch, you know, once a week. Let's play sports or, you know, let's email each other and we'll pursue unity. Right? That's junior high school. Right? That's not true unity. For us to be united, to, it, our unity is dependent upon our pursuit of God. So first person you and I need to be united with is God. Right? How? Through doctrine and through holiness. Second is through your elders. Right? United with our philosophy of ministry. Imitating how we live. Hebrews 13. Observing our conduct. Observing your shepherds, your flock shepherds, your leaders. Observing how they make decisions. Observing their values. What they cherish in life. How they lead their families. And imitating your life with them. You mean united with them. And then it's one another. Right? And then there's unity with one another. But it all starts with your pursuit of God through doctrine and life. You know, Band of Brothers, that, that movie has that phrase, we stand alone together. And I love that. Right? So, if, you and, I, if you, you and I are standing alone, then we're together. If you and I are standing in terms of truth and holiness, we are united. But if I'm not, if, I, if I'm harboring false doctrine in my life, or if I'm harboring sin, if I'm living for selfish desires, we can't be united. You can't be united with me. It's an impossibility. No matter how much you know, I have you know, uh, sentimental affections towards you, you towards me, if I'm not standing in Christ, unity is not possible. Therefore, if you want to be united, if you want that part of a community, pursue Christ. Pursue truth and sanctification. If you feel estranged in the church, if you feel that you're separated, you feel you are, there's a separation between you and the body, a division between you and the body, one or two things. You have wrong doctrine, or you're not pursuing sanctification. Right? Really. I mean, it's, it's those magical words. You know, it's me. Right? If you feel like, oh, I don't know church isn't loving me as, I, as the church should or I feel a separation I don't feel united with the church say those two words it's me what's wrong with my doctrine what's wrong with my doctrine of God's sovereignty God's view of salvation God's view of sin God's view of the church you know about God's word something's wrong in my conception of God's word of doctrine or something's wrong in terms of, of my holiness I'm harboring sin in my heart I'm harboring wrong things in my heart. This leads us to our final study, hopefully final study next week, which is implication number five. Number six, actually, excuse me. 
our positional unity, relational unity, and spiritual slash ministry unity are all for the purpose of the gospel to the world. We're not here to just enjoy this unity. We are pursuing these things. And we are receiving the fruits of unity. Why? So that when we go to Czech Republic, there's no conflict between Marcus and Amy and Mark and Rosie and the Shims and the Smiths and Cornells. There's no conflict there. Why? Because there's unity. When we're in Kazakhstan, right? There's no difficulty there. When we go to Malaysia, there's no conflict there because all these things are in place. If we go to China, if we go to North Korea, we can contend for the gospel, right? As one man, making a powerful witness. Look how different we are. But we have this unity because of the Holy Spirit, because of the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, your truth. We thank you for the Word of God, that um, uh, the lamp unto our path, light unto our feet. Oh Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes to see uh, who you are and how we must live in light of who you are. We pray, oh God, there is such a need in our church for men and women to grow um, in doctrine and life. May the sweetness of unity, sweetness of the fellowship, and love and peace uh, compel us, motivate us to all the more pursue you uh, so that you might have greater and greater unity in our church. We thank you, God, for John 17. In Jesus' name, amen.